0: if you would, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 2. If you happen to be visiting with us, we've started a new study on the book of 1 Samuel. We're slowly progressing through it, and this morning we'll begin in verse 11 and read to the end of the chapter. There's a lot going on in this passage. There's a lot of different people saying and doing very different things. The author is going to jump back and forth between all these various individuals and highlight the contrasts between them. And so the way that I would like to divide this passage is by focusing on the different people or the different groups of people. And so this is your outline. First, we're going to look at Samuel's parents, who are Elkanah and Hannah. Second, we'll look at the sons of Eli, who are named Hophni and Phinehas. Third, we'll see Samuel, the namesake of this book. Fourth is Eli, the high priest. And fifth is the man of God, this unknown prophet who appears on the scene. So that's Samuel's parents, the sons of Eli, Samuel, Samuel. Eli and this man of God, the prophet. That's my outline as we make our way through. In his commentary, Dale Ralph Davis recounts a story from World War II where an American B-17 bomber is flying over a German city and it's hit by German anti-aircraft guns. But the plane doesn't blow up. It doesn't crash. Instead, it's able to make it all the way back to base. And the next morning, the pilot of that plane asked his superior if he could have one of the shells that hit his plane. He wants it as a souvenir. Well, he was told that he'd actually been hit by 11 shells and that they had all been taken away to the armor to be diffused so that there would be no risk of them blowing up at a later time. Well, when those shells were examined, do you know what they found? They were completely empty. They contained no explosive charges, nothing that could blow up. These shells were blanks, and their insides were completely empty, all but one. One of these 11 had a little note rolled up and stuffed inside it. The note was written in Czech, And it wasn't long before the Americans found someone on base who could translate this note, who spoke Czech. And when they did, they learned this note said, quote, This is all we can do for you now. End quote. Now, there had obviously been some Czechs who had been forced at gunpoint to work in a German munitions plant to build these anti-aircraft shells. And what did they do? Well, they didn't form some grand conspiracy to assassinate Hitler. They didn't rise up and take control of this munitions plant. They just quietly refused to fill all the shells with explosive materials. They simply did all they could do at the time. And their unnoticed actions saved that American plane and the airmen within it. Quiet actions of goodness and faithfulness amid overwhelming darkness and wickedness. That's what we're going to see in today's passage. And it's often the way that our God works. You know, often we're tempted to believe that God only works in big, dramatic, noticeable ways like the parting of the Red Sea or the falling of Jericho's walls. But more times than not, He works in and through the small, unnoticed daily faithfulness of His people, even in times of great darkness. And that's what we're going to see. But first, let's pray together. Father God, we'll see in this text that you send your word to your people and you do so for their good. Father, we remember this morning that the Holy Scriptures, your word, has been given to us for our good. Would you bless it as we open it together this morning? In Jesus' name. Amen. Right, I'm going to begin in verse 11 of chapter 2 and read to the end of the chapter. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man Offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, Before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was offering, uh, who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord. A boy clothed in a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew In the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. Know, my sons, It is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me, I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now, the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep, His eyes out to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. See, there's a a lot going on here. Lots of people doing lots of various things. And again, we're going to begin with Samuel's parents, with Elkanah and Hannah. Hannah made a vow back in chapter 1. That if the Lord would give her a son, she would give that son back to him to serve the Lord all the days of his life. And Hannah kept that promise. She left her son at the tabernacle under the care of Eli, the high priest. And if we jump ahead to verse 19, we'll see something that I just find so sweet. Every year, Hannah would make a new robe for little Samuel. And she would bring it to him, every year when the family would go up to Shiloh to worship God. Now, most of you know that a lot of the dresses, not all, but I think the dresses this morning, that my little girls wear, they're either made by my wife, Molly, or my mother-in-law, Janet. And it's something that they love uh, to do for them. And uh, I'm just trying to imagine being separated from one of my girls for a year and then being reunited with them and then seeing Molly hand over a new beautiful gown to one of them. Hannah, I'm sure, felt something very similar. Making that robe was no doubt something she loved to do, something she looked forward to, And, and then that moment where she was reunited with her son after a whole year and then presented him with a brand new spotless garment. Richard Phillips in his commentary notes that, you know, sometimes it might be that Janet and Molly might, as they're sewing, just have music on or have a podcast on, and they're just kind of, they're so good at sewing, they don't really have to think about it. But this commentator makes the point that he believes Hannah is not mindlessly sewing this robe. He says, imagine the prayers that Hannah wove into every strand of her growing son's annual robe along with the exhortations and encouragements that came with its delivery. Imagine this faithful mother thinking of her son and praying for him as she's there weaving this garment together. It's a dark passage, but that's a beautiful moment, I think. But that is isn't all for them. I mean, did you catch how Hannah's life has further changed? How were we first introduced to Hannah? As a barren woman who is unable to have any children. But what do we see in verse 21? She now has a house full three sons and two daughters. She goes from no children to six children. She'd given Samuel, her firstborn child, and for all she knew, her only child, to the Lord. And she receives an abundance in return. Now, I I don't want you to view this in a pragmatic or mechanistic way, thinking, well, if I do this, then God must do that. Please don't go there. I just want you to be reminded of the character of our God and that He is one who delights to give grace upon grace. Grace. Dale Ralph Davis makes the comment, no sacrifice ever seems to impoverish one of the Lord's servants. And that was certainly the case for Hannah. Near the end of the passage in verse 30, we'll read, the Lord say, those who honor me, I will honor. And again, certainly the case for dear Hannah. And from here on out, both Hannah and Elkanah will disappear from this story. We do not hear from them again. But we have this final word that stands as a reminder of our God's love to bless and honor and give good gifts to his people. So that's Samuel's parents' We have to move on to the dark portion of this passage, to the actions and character of the sons of Eli, who were named Hophni and Phinehas. How are we introduced to them in verse 12? There are no punches pulled. They are worthless men who did not know the Lord. These are two sons of the high priest these are men who were supposed to serve alongside their father in the holy place. These are the spiritual leaders of the nation. And they are described as worthless men. Now we've seen that description already in this book. I mean, this is unbelievably ironic. You remember as Hannah is praying in chapter one, she's deeply distressed. And Eli thought she was drunk. And he reprimands her. And Hannah says, I was just praying in deep distress. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. That's what Eli thought of her initially. But who are the worthless individuals? The high priest's own sons. They don't know the Lord, and yet here they are in the tabernacle. They, they know the scriptures. They know the ins and outs of a worship service. This is their full-time employment. But they don't even know the God they claim to serve. Instead, they're just living for themselves and their own fleshly appetites. But what are they doing First, we see that they were treating the offerings of the Lord with contempt. Here's what would happen. Someone like Elkanah, Hannah, one of God's people would come to the tabernacle and offer sacrifices and worship God. The sacrifice would be offered. A portion of that sacrifice would then be cooked by the family and eaten together by the family. They they would have this family meal together at the tabernacle. This is the same meal, by the way, in chapter 1 when Hannah is too upset to eat. And here's what they would do. As the family was cooking their meal, this temple servant sent by the sons of Eli would come in with a large fork and he would thrust it down into the pot. And whatever came out the servant would claim for himself and for the sons of Eli. You know, we'd like to think that maybe it had been boiling for a long time, so when he stabbed it, just a small piece of meat tore off, but I don't think that's likely. He knew what he was doing. And there were probably many times in which the entire meal would be skewered and the family would be left with nothing. And it's not that the priests were starving. The priests were provided for. God provided for them. In Leviticus 7, we're told that they were already entitled to uh, the breast and the right thigh. That was their portion they could eat. But over time, they got greedy. They wanted more, and they robbed God's people of their meal. You know, after this sermon, we're going to come to the table for the Lord's Supper I just want you to imagine if, if me and Jordan and Bill came up front and we gathered around the table and ate all the bread and drank all the juice while you just watched and were given nothing. This is a terrible thing they're doing. But it continues. Not only were they stealing from the worshipers, they were stealing from God himself. In verse 15, we're told that before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would confiscate it as well. Now, this is the prime cut. This is the filet. The choice part of the animal, and it belonged to God. This piece was to be burned and offered to the Lord, but they stole this as well. And if you tried to resist... They would threaten you with violence. This is what is meant in verse 17 when we read, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Alas, that's not even all they're doing. The wickedness of these two knows no bounds. We're told in verse 22, that they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. These ministering women who should have been treated with the utmost of respect. Who never should have been made to feel uncomfortable in the presence of the priests. They were serving the Lord in this sacred place this place where God dwelt with His people, this place of divine worship. But how are they treated by the sons of Eli? Well, they're treated like pagan temple prostitutes. And everyone knew about it. Everyone did. This was a dark time for God's people. You know, you have the spiritual leaders of the nation Using their office for personal gain. Using their office to feed their wicked appetites. And sadly, these instances are all too common, aren't they? I mean, we've all heard stories like this. Stories where ministers will rob their people. They'll rob the Lord or they engage in perverse acts of adultery. And in doing so, they hurt their people and bring reproach on the name of the Lord they claim to serve. This passage is a a warning to myself. And it should be a warning to all ministers. Beware of seeking personal gain because this is where it ends up. I'll tell you, I am not deluded enough to believe that I am above or incapable of these sins. So please pray for me. Pray for our elders. Pray for my fellow ministers here in Corinth. Men like my friend Waring Porter or Kim Ratliff, or Nathan Van Horn, and the rest, pray that the restraining hand of God would keep us from such evil and that we would not bring reproach upon the name of the Savior. This is a dark time, and yet there's a glimmer of hope. Little Samuel is there, in the midst of this darkness, faithfully serving the Lord. And you wonder, how did did, did he escape this influence? You know, young boys are always looking to older boys and older men to, to model. How did he escape this? Well, Spurgeon comments here. Molly found this yesterday and gave it to me. This quote, This dear child escaped contamination. Because of god's because God's grace preserved him and also because his mother's prayers like a wall of fire, were all around him. Do you notice all those short little snippets about Samuel that are woven into the text they're signs that God has not abandoned his people he's still working they might have ungodly leaders but he's raising up future leaders. And so in verse 11 and in verse 18, we see that Samuel is faithfully serving and ministering to the Lord. He's doing the exact opposite of what the sons of Eli are doing. And he seems to be the only one doing so. You know, I I want you to think about your own context. If you're an adult, I want you to think about where you work. If You're a student. I want you to think about school. Maybe all of us, we can think about family gatherings. Wherever it is, there might be a place where you feel like Samuel. Like you are the only one in the whole building that is walking with the Lord. I'm sure Eli's... Sons poked at Samuel and ridiculed Samuel and laughed at him. You you may feel that. You may feel alone and isolated. And I want to exhort you to call out to the Lord. Because you won't be able to remain faithful on your own and in your own strength. Cry out to God. Pray for Him to fill you with His Spirit so that you'll be strengthened and able to serve him well. My favorite pastor, John Newton, wrote a hymn about this very thing. It's actually, Molly and I I are working on a tune so that we can sing this in worship together. Now that I've said it, we have to make it happen. But we're working on a tune so that we can sing this together. I haven't found a tune, I've only found the words, which is why we're so bold to attempt it, but... It's titled, My Grace is Sufficient for Thee. And I want to read you the lyrics. Oppressed with unbelief and sin, Fightings without and fears within, While earth and hell with force combined Assault and terrify my mind. What strength have I against such foes, Such hosts and legions to oppose? Alas, I tremble, faint and fall, Lord, save me, or I give up all. Thus sorely pressed, I sought the Lord to give me some sweet cheering word. Again I sought, and yet again I waited long, but not in vain. O, t'was a cheering word indeed, exactly suited to my need. Sufficient for thee is my grace. Thy weakness my great power displays. Now despond and mourn no more. I welcome all I feared before. Though weak, I'm strong. Though troubled, blessed. For Christ's own power shall on me rest. My grace would soon exhausted be. But his is boundless as the sea. Then let me boast with holy Paul that I am nothing. Christ is all make that your prayer brothers and sisters that though weak you are strong though troubled you are blessed for christ's own power shall on you rest there's one more note on little samuel before we continue you'll notice that the author tells us eli was very old But Samuel is growing and maturing. And then in verse 26, we we, we read a verse I hope is very familiar to you. Now Samuel the boy continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Where have we heard that before? You'll find it in Luke chapter 2 describing the Lord Jesus as a boy. Luke chapter 2, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. What words of praise for Samuel. The same words used of a young Jesus would also be used of young Samuel. He's he's serving as a Christ-like figure. Amid great darkness. And again, we're reminded that God is at work. The current leadership might be horrible, but God is working to provide new leadership for his people. You know, as a pastor, I'll get asked by folks. There's someone someone this past week, not in this congregation, someone I bumped into during the week. Uh, was talking with me, and they said, John, are we in the end times? You know, things are just so bad. I I watch the news. I just think we're in the end times. And uh, I gave the same answer that I gave you when we were back in Micah. I said, yes, we are in the end times because we live between the first and second comings of Jesus. Now, this person wasn't... I could tell they were not really satisfied by that answer I I think they probably would have preferred that I give a prophetic word on the battle of Armageddon but here's something new I'm going to add when I'm asked that question look at young Samuel look at him and remember that God is at work in times of darkness in times of unbelief in times of widespread sin God is quietly providing for his church. So be encouraged. We've looked at Samuel's parents. We've looked at the sons of Eli. We've looked at Samuel, and now we come to Eli. He's the high priest and father of these two scoundrels. In verse 11, we're told that Samuel is ministering in his presence. Uh, We see him speaking words of blessing to Samuel's parents in verse 20. But then comes a confrontation with his sons in verses 22. He'd heard the widespread rumors of their sin. And in verse 23, he asks them, Why do you do such evil things? And then he gives a warning in verse 25. If someone sins against a man, God will intercede or God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Now, we need to be clear here. I want to remind you that ultimately all of our sins are against the Lord. David makes that clear in Psalm 51. When we look at the Scriptures as a whole, we know that there's no bifurcation between sins against neighbor and sins against the Lord. Ultimately, all of our sin is against the Lord. So what's Eli talking about? Well, look at the context. What have his sons done they've treated the lord's sacrifice with contempt god has made one way by which the sin of his people could be atoned for blood is shed not the blood of his people but the blood of another and through that blood there is forgiveness but what if you show contempt for this sacrifice What if you reject God's means of salvation? For you and me today, who will intercede for us if we despise the gospel? Who will save us if we reject Christ's atonement and cleansing blood? The answer is no one. It is only through Him that we're saved. The Lord has provided one Means by which we are forgiven and escape judgment, and we are warned here not to treat it lightly. Will the sons listen to the voice of their father? No, they don't, and we see that they're going to die. But notice something. Look at verse 25. It does not say they would not listen to their father. Therefore, the Lord would put them to death. doesn't say that. What does verse 25 say? They would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Why are they not listening to their father? Because it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Do you see where they are? They are beyond repentance. They are beyond grace. They have been made totally deaf to the warnings of their father. And their hearts have been totally hardened. You know, I know texts like this naturally make us uncomfortable, so I'm just going to lean on the big boys a lot during this text. You'll hear Del Ralph Davis' name over and over and over again. First thing he says, this is Ralph Davis, he says, their resistance was not the rationale for the Lord's judgment. It was the result of his judgment. This text teaches that someone can remain so in his rebellion that God will confirm him in it so much so that he will remain utterly deaf to and unmoved by any warnings of judgment or pleas for repentance Davis is saying they are already experiencing the judgment of God in their deafness and dismissiveness of their father's warnings this is a terrifying place to be. God has handed them over entirely to their sin, and there is no coming back. He's going to let them chase their sin until they finally go headlong over the cliff into destruction. This is why we take every Lord's Day, we take time to confess our sin. This is important. This is why you'll hear from me and other pastors that we need to be quick to confess our sin and to repent of it. This is why it's so dangerous to go against the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Just, yeah, I know this is wrong, but I'm just going to do it anyways. There's a hardening that can happen. A hardening of the heart to the point where repentance becomes impossible. And here to quote... Ralph Davis, again, there's, there's a warning, two warnings. The first thing he says, that some of you may become the Lord's prosecutors, alleging he is deficient in mercy. And we shouldn't do that. You don't get to judge the Almighty, O oh man. Remember Hannah's words back in verse 3. By Him actions are weighed. Don't be so arrogant to think you can judge God and say he's being unmerciful or ungracious. That's the first warning. The second one Davis gives is this. Others may be intellectually curious about the mechanics of hardening. At what precise point in sin's progress does it become impossible to repent? You see what what, what the question is? We may start asking, well, at what point Did these two become irredeemable? What was the bridge too far? How many sins could have been forgiven, but when did they cross the line and enter into total hardness and damnation? And David says, don't ask that question. Rather, he says, our place is not to question or to comprehend, but to tremble before a God who can justly make sinners deaf to the very call of repentance. I'm going to give you a better alternative than criticism or curiosity. Pray that the Holy Spirit would show you the hidden evils of your heart and then confess them and repent of them quickly and then praise God for the mercy and grace that is ours in Christ. Back to Eli. We know that he didn't have the power to change his son's hearts. But he could have done a lot more than what he did. He could have removed them from their office. That would have stopped the theft from the people of God. It would have stopped their abuse of the women serving in the tabernacle. He could have thrown them out and brought in others to serve in their place. But he doesn't. He'll give them a verbal scolding, but then do nothing else. There's no discipline. And what we see here is probably very characteristic of how he raised them. He may have scolded them when they embarrassed him, but he didn't discipline them. It's like the parent who sees their child misbehave, and they say, don't do that. And then their child does it again. And they never take their child away. They never lead their child by the hand, remove them from the situation, and show them how they sinned. There's an indictment against Eli. In verse 29, it's spoken by this unknown prophet that we're about to get to. The indictment is You honor your sons above me. This is familiar. Think about a parent who knows right or wrong. A parent who knows God's word. A parent who knows what sin is. But then their child engages in that sin. Their child embraces that sin. Their child says, this is who I am and this is how I will live from now on. I don't care what God says. And what does the parent too often do? Their attitude towards that sin softens and they become their child's defender. They place acceptance with their child and the love for peace and family unity higher than holiness to God and obedience to his word. They honor their children above the Lord. And this is a warning for us parents, isn't it? If we will honor the Lord, we must say two things. We can say, my child, I love you. I will always love you, but what you're doing is totally wrong. What you're doing is a sin before God, and you are in danger so long as you continue in this sin and refuse to repent. I love you, but out of allegiance to Almighty God, I cannot accept and celebrate your sin. I will not honor you above the Lord. It will only lead to trouble. That's all we have of Eli for today, the final person, and we're going to go through him quickly, I promise. The final person is the man of God, this prophet in verse 27, who really appears out of nowhere, and we know nothing about him, but he comes to bring God's word to Eli. And he begins by recounting what the Lord has done. He begins by talking about Aaron, the first priest of Israel. He says, I established this priesthood, the altar, the incense, the ephod, the offerings. Why then do you scorn these things by honoring your sons above me? Why have you tolerated sin in my house? And then what follows is news that Eli's house is going to come to an end. His family line will be cut off. This fruitless branch will be pruned from the vine. No more will Eli's family serve in the holy place. And the prophet says, here's here's the proof how you'll know that my words are true. Both of your sons are going to die on the same day. When that happens, you'll know that my words are true. We'll see that happen in chapter 4. Now we won't end there because there is light and hope. First off, the very fact that the word of God comes to his people, this is wonderful. God's people are being protected. The wolves are being removed. They will no longer steal from and abuse the women and pervert the worship of God's people. And that is good news for Israel. But there's more good news. God will remove these wolves and place a faithful priest in their place. We see this in verse 35. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Who is this faithful priest? Well, it's not Samuel. Samuel more of a judge and a prophet. A lot of commentators will point to a man named Zadok, who will minister in the days of Solomon. There's a descendant of Eli who's actually uh, in the temple serving as priest and he's removed and this verse is cited and then Zadok is put in his place. That's in 1 Kings 2. But ultimately, we know that there's only one person who perfectly fulfills this role as God's faithful high priest and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, we see the roles of the priest in verse 28 and we we think, "How, how are those fulfilled and perfected in the Lord? He will go up to my altar Jesus went up to Calvary and offered his blood to atone for and cover the sins of the people. He is one who offers incense. Well, that's exactly what the Lord Jesus does. He intercedes between his people and offers prayers to the Lord on their behalf. The priest wears the ephod. You remember the ephod is this garment that had 12 stones sewn into it. Each stone represented the tribe of Israel and they were represented before the Lord. But what of Jesus? Oh, he's got something better than an ephod. In Isaiah 49, 16, we read, Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. As our priest, he doesn't wear a stone on his shirt by which he remembers you. Your name is written, on the palm of his hand. This is our great high priest. This is who the Lord promised and did raise up. I want to encourage you that the Lord is building his house. We see here that even amidst great evil, God is stubbornly resolved to provide for his people and no one is going to stop him. We see something very similar that Jesus says in Matthew 16, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I hope you leave this place trusting that God is working, that he's keeping his promise, his church will continue, his kingdom is unshakable, and so trust him and continue on in little acts of faithfulness and humility, remembering the words he spoke, those who honor me, I will honor. Let's pray. Father, again, this is the, the point and purpose every time I stand before your people, that they might see Christ. Father, would you grow our knowledge of him? Would you grow our reliance on him? Would you grow our delight in him? Our great high priest who makes intercession for us and will do so forever and ever. We ask this all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.